0: all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have it to get 30, 30, I bet you get 30, maybe get 20, 20, 20, I bet you get, 20, 20 I bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full turns at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Neil Lee about innovation for the masses, how to share the benefits of the high-tech economy. Uh, So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, This is, I mean, it's an incredibly interesting book. Um, You know, absolutely fascinating. But I think it's incredibly important and really sort of of the moment. Um, It's a book that tries to get to grips with, uh, I suppose, kind of like, how we do modern economies in, in a variety of of different ways. And it, it's a question that I think is pressing right all over the world, basically, in respect of the kind of economy or society in, in which we live. So that scale of sort of ambition, um, I think, is, is, is quite incredible. And I, and I do think the book delivers in a variety of ways. But if the ambition is kind of global, the book starts with a lovely kind of local story, I think, and, and it's a local story that really illustrates all of the um, kind of paradoxes and nuances that the book tries to bring to the study of economies and and in particular innovation. So the book starts in Oxford um, and I guess your kind of uh, experience of growing up and I'm intrigued by why you started the book in that way and how that experience kind of inspires your interest in um, the economics of innovation.
0: Yeah so one of the things about being from Oxford is that when you talk about it to people they sort of say things like you know, oh, it's, you know, great. it must be strong economy, you know, dreaming spires. They have all these sort of cliches of the place. And one of the big cliches is basically about sort of science and innovation. And people say, oh, you know, this place it's like, you know, think about the Oxford vaccine and, you know, lots of other things, which I'm sure have come out of the, the universities in the city. And actually you look around you and you say, well, you know, I'm not so sure that this is benefiting my sort of friends and my sort of relatives who live around the place. Because actually, you know, what we've seen is is this sort of model of innovation where, the, you know, there's plenty of good jobs, but they're not necessarily going to the sort of people who are sort of, you know, um, from Oxford. They're not necessarily sort of creating wealth, which is sort of trickling down to pe- the people I sort of people I went to school with. Um, so it really started me, made me sort of question the sort of the premise of this, because, you know... Oxford gets a lot of money, gets a lot of public money to sort of, you know, stimulate this innovation ecosystem. And I think it's really important that we do something which makes sure that the benefits actually actually reach those people who live in Oxford.
1: I mean, this might sound like a slightly strange question, uh, but what are you actually talking about when you're talking about things like innovation? Um, I think it's, it's a term that kind of gets bandied around quite a lot, um, both in terms of like things like you know, science policy, economics policy, but also in more general terms about what economies and societies need to do to perform better. So how do you sort of define it in the book?
0: Yeah, so there's no good definition of innovation. There's only sort of, you know, less bad ones. So the, I mean, the classic thing about innovation, you can sort of think about it theoretically um, as being about the sort of commercialization of new technology. And the problem then is that you need to also define technology as so sort of, you know, things which serve a human need is a sort of good definition there. And then you also need to think about sort of commercialization. And most of the book, to be honest, I'm focused on commercialization or use of these innovations in the market. But you can also have sort of innovation, you know, social innovations. People talk about the NHS as being an innovation, you know, things which are done by sort of charities as being an innovation. But I'm more focused on the sort of commercial side of things, the type of stuff we do to try and sort of grow the
1: economy, basically. How do we measure that then? Uh, One one of the things that uh, the book gets into is, Um, Not just the kind of the problem of definition, but also, I guess, the problem of, of measurement. How, for example, do we know that like some countries are more innovative than others?
0: Yeah, so traditionally, you'd use something like patenting. So you'd use a measure of patenting. You know, do you have a patent for a particular new product? That's actually a measure of invention rather than innovation. It's a measure which tells you something about whether someone has invented something new, not whether they've sort of commercialized it. Another definition you use, research and development spending. Very popular at the moment because it's a... You know, governments assessing R&D targets to try and increase their research and and development base. Um, So those are sort of two of the common ways, and those are two of the ways I look at it. But there's all sorts of other ways you can look at it. You know, people use the number of unicorn firms per capita, and I look at that a bit in the book. Um, Deeply problematic way of measuring innovation, but sort of interesting sort of nonetheless. I mean, my favourite, the one which I like the most, which is 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 R and D, and the reason I like R and D is because patenting is about sort of science, and you know, it's a lot about sort of science. But R and D also includes some measure of sort of diffusion and adaptation of of technologies for for new circumstances. So that's one which I sort of rely on the most. Although, you know, I'd be I'd be the first to admit that there's no there's no good and there's
1: no complete way of measuring it. You mentioned that um, kind of. I suppose, perception in Oxford of where are the benefits of innovation going, particularly in terms of things like providing jobs, um, either for like you know local people growing up in Oxford um, and also in terms of like what kind of jobs. One of the things the book does uh, quite early on as, as part of the scene setting is it tries to get to grips with this question of whether innovation is good for jobs. Um, and I'm interested in that partially because It sets up uh, the discussion that comes in the book's case studies, but also I suppose it's maybe one of the great kind of myths of innovation. You know, we see this a lot with AI at the moment and discussions of, you know, thousands of people will be put out of work because robots are going to replace us. But what's your take on the idea of, I guess, kind of innovation's impact on jobs?
0: Yeah. So people always say that innovation is going to go new technologies, going to come into the marketplace and they're going to sort of, you know, end, you know, lead to unemployment. And- I mean, the problem with that statement is there's really no evidence for large-scale unemployment at a sort of national level, basically. We do know that where you have innovations, they can often create sort of um, unemployment at a sort of local level. You know, if you think about, um, you know, some sort of technological shift, which changes automotive manufacturing and, you know, it's quite easy to see examples where that sort of cost people jobs in in a particular area. But overall, if you look at the sort of long span of of sort of human history, incomes have been rising. Um, Unemployment has been, you know, ebbs and flows, but sort of no massive trend upwards. Unemployment rate tends to be more determined by sort of social features, rather than sort of the rate of sort of technological change. So it's not that nothing's happening, it's just it's probably not leading to sort of unemployment. So there are a few things which are clearly happening, right? Which is that, you know, the economy is always changing. We talk about technological change and it's not like one big thing which happens. It's not like an innovation and that's the only thing which happens instead it's better to think about sort of labor markets as being buffeted by sort of continual waves of change which are continually sort of you know changing the tasks which people do um and the type of jobs which people do so like you know i'm an academic obviously you know 50 years ago my understanding was that academics had people doing people typing letters for them and stuff like that that clearly doesn't happen what anymore and what at least doesn't happen to me it might happen to you dave with the um (laughs) But, but now, so, so what's happened essentially is that the tasks which I perform as an academic have changed. Um, that can be good, it can be bad, but it's not, It's not. It's, it's been a sort of process of change, it's been a process of the job evolving rather than process of the job sort of declining um, overall. And of course, there are some examples of jobs which, are, which no longer exist. There are some, you know, there's very few people working in telephone exchanges, for example. Um, but... Most of the time, the story is one of sort of evolution. So jobs evolve over time. Now, the question, which you sort of led with, which I, you know, the question is whether AI is going to be different. Um, is AI going to come for a, a different sort of job? And, you know, I'm I'm sort of open that it might, you know, I'm sure it's going to have a sort of profound and important impact. But given what we know from the last waves of technological change, is it going to lead to widespread unemployment? I'm not so sure. Um, at least not in the sort of, you know, Short term. Instead, what's likely to happen is that the economy will adapt. At least that's my take for now. So, you know, 20 years' time, you could be, it could be an AI system interviewing another AI system. But, you know, I I don't think that's likely to happen for
1: a while. I mean, on that, the the kind of key question is, I guess, one of of sort of uh, equity and and why I'd think of as kind of one of inequality. And one of the things the book does, uh, both as a kind of framing device, but also. This question of of equity runs actually throughout the book. It tries to say that I guess the sort of proceeds of innovation are shared depending on the kinds of what would I say kind of models that countries have. And, and you've got these four, uh, I guess, kind of clubs of uh, countries based on uh, the relationship between equity and innovation. What what are the four? And I, and I suppose kind of what lessons are the four different. Um, sets of countries got in terms of how innovation impacts on economy and society?
0: Yeah. So first of all, I mean, I sort of, I use this as like a sort of analytical device, I guess, which doesn't, you know, it's like an imper. all these categorizations are sort of imperfect. But in this, you know, I basically divide the world up into sort of all the advanced world into sort of four clubs, as it were. So ones which are pretty, not very innovative, um, but relative, but where a large share of the income goes to people who are. On relatively low incomes, so less innovative relatively unequal places might include somewhere like Greece for example sort of it's in there sometimes you might put um, you know some of the sort of Turkey sometimes goes in there some sort of Latin American countries um, you've got this sort of group of countries which are sort of relatively more equal but not that innovative so places like you know these tend to be European, Czech Republic, Hungary um, but then the places which I think are most interesting the places which combine where you have like high levels of um, innovation, but high levels of inequality. So the United States is like always in this category. Israel, pretty you know, pretty much in this category, depending on how you measure it. And it was obvious sort of, you know, very difficult um, political reasons behind that as well. Um, but the, for me, the focus in this, you know, the reason for sort of coming up with this sort of categorization is to sort of identify like a set of countries which managed to combine a sort of high share of income going to, the bottom forty percent, or a low Gini coefficient, and high levels of innovation, and you don't get a consistent picture, but you get a set of countries which are basically the Nordics. So, particularly, I mean, Norway's exceptional, but you know, the, we're talking this Sweden, Finland, Denmark. Sometimes you get the low countries fall into that category: Netherlands, Belgium. You get this sort of Alpine belt of sort of you know capitalist countries. Sw- Switzerland's always like a really, a really, really interesting example. One of the world's most innovative countries. Um, but you know, and with its own very sort of unique system, Austria as well sort of falls into that category. So you have this sort of alpine set of countries. And then sometimes, you know, not always, but sometimes in the data you get the sort of East Asian um island economies. So you get Taiwan, Japan, sort of fall into that, South Korea sometimes, but but only in a few. Um only in a few of the sort of plots which I produce. So you end up with this pattern where, you know. We have a set of countries which look like they're doing something sort of original and interesting and new, and for me, that's something which is is really worth studying.
1: And the way you study it is with three arguments: this idea that actually it's not all about America. <laughs> Europe, you know, actually does have uh, some good good lessons in in terms of uh, sharing the proceeds of innovation. Uh, the state really matters, and I mean, you know, that shouldn't be controversial. But in some Uh, settings it is Um, and then actually innovation really reinforces uh, shared prosperity and shared prosperity reinforces innovation rather than I guess a kind of you know race to the bottom being the great motivator for innovations these arguments kind of play out with some of these um, sort of superstar countries that you've just been outlining Um, And we'll do, I think, each in turn, because each has got slightly different lessons. Um, And they're sort of, I think, kind of critical of each of them as well in in terms of um, no country is kind of perfect, but um, the countries you look at have definitely got uh, lessons for us. So we've got Switzerland, Austria, Sweden, um, and Taiwan. Um, And if we kick off with Switzerland, so the two things that intrigued me was, on the one hand, this kind of beautiful story about Swiss watches, which is, as much a kind of story of technical innovation as it is maybe kind of branding as well, which I found fascinating, but also the way that you try and say there are lots of paradoxes in Switzerland. Switzerland doesn't just have a kind of um, innovation system that we should just import wholesale to every country because there are lots of, um, I guess, kind of issues and and limitations with it. So what's what's the kind of Swiss uh,
0: model? So Switzerland is sort of, In many indicators, Switzerland comes as like the most innovative country on Earth, right? And it's interesting for me for a number of reasons. One is because it's sort of, it's kind of like, you know, it's a small country, but it's kind of an all-rounder, right? In that it has, you know, Google's, I think it's the largest Google location outside of um, the United States, in Zurich. But it's also got these sort of middle-stand type, small, you know, heavily export-intensive, heavily... Um, innovative sort of exports-focused small, and medium-sized enterprises or medium-sized enterprises. So it's got this sort of like it manages to do the sort of German manufacturing thing as well as it does the sort of um, uh, the sort of like I guess almost like a UK-type sort of VC tech type thing as well. So it's really interesting from that perspective. But like you say, it's got some sort of paradox. Some, no one no one thinks about Switzerland as being a place where you go for sort of uh, relative equality, but it actually it's got a very high share of the income going to the, um, the bottom 40%. Um, and then say other thing, which is interesting about it as well, right? Is it's like a, a lot of Swiss Swiss model is about sort of pre-distribution. So it's about the fact that you have, um, it's not about the state taking money from the rich and giving it to the, those who are less well off. It's about the state giving people in Switzerland, the capacity to earn good wages themselves. It's really interesting. So that, for me, certainly it's really interesting. You know, so the wage share hasn't declined nearly as much as it has across many other OECD countries and stuff like that. And actually, you know, there's a few things which are, you know, which which is sort of underpinning this model. A lot of it is sort of historical. You know, Switzerland has its own very unique history. You know, a lot of the sort of big Swiss companies are companies which are, you know, which have been around for sort of 300 years. But it's also got this sort of, you know, it's it's. It's sort of held by its system in a way, which sort of seems to work in a way, which is like very, very unique. So in the UK, we talk a lot about policy chat. So we have huge amounts of policy chat. And one of the things which was really interesting about interviewing Swiss policymakers, first of all, they weren't that interested in fads. They weren't, you know, everywhere else is trying to do missions and stuff like that. The Swiss policymakers were like, well, look, things going really well here. Why would we possibly think about taking this on when we can sort of, you know, continue with how things are going. Second thing, was, there's a sort of ruthlessness to the policymakers in that, you know, I talked about, um, you know, we talk, I talk a lot about the vocational education system in Switzerland, which is like hugely important in that sort of, um, in innovation. I interviewed sort of big multinational firms, which just said the vocational education system is really, really important. there. And the, you know, one of the things about that is that they are absolutely ruthless in terms of telling people when they are able to do, when they're able to study stuff essentially so you know if you're a swiss youth who wants an apprenticeship you can only do the apprenticeship if the if there is a company which is willing to give you a job and this aligns you know business business needs with the sort of education system really really clearly and then the third thing which i thought was really interesting about switzerland is there's like a sort of high trust sort of devolution thing so you interview you know i interviewed sort of senior policy in the federal government and they'd be like well i think zurich's doing this i've got no idea what geneva's doing because that's a different you know, that's not really my problem. You know, I'm only gonna be interested if they start looking like they're doing really badly. So this Swiss model is like, yeah, very, very interesting. Um and, you know, I think very, very unique as well. Should we all move Switzerland? Like what are the uh, what are the downsides though? Okay, so like there's there's some sort of big downsides. So first of all, can you could you have like a large Switzerland this is I think an interesting question. It's like nine million people, it's right next to Germany um and France. So it's sort of got its own. You know, so that's a big sort of, you know, big problem. I think it's not a great place for, you know, there's a lot of measures it doesn't do nearly so well. So like one, you know, if I was you, Dave, one of my critiques of this book would be that I don't, you know, I don't have a great treatment of um, gender inequality and I don't have a great treatment of sort of, you know, ethnic and racial inequality. Mm -hmm. Um, So both of those things are sort of like, you know, I'd be, it's a a big picture book. You know, I, I think those are both things which are worthy of study. And I've actually done, you know, papers on both. Um, recently, but you know, so I think well, those are both problems in Switzerland. There's still places in Switzerland where it's very, very normal for you know kids to go to go from go back from school to um, the house at lunchtime. This like restrains you know mothers' working patterns, stuff like that. So there's lots of sort of you know bad things there. And then the other things, of course, the Swiss are kind of like kind of precious about their model for you know for good reason. It's a really nice place. It's obviously very expensive, but you know there's quite strong. It's, you know, one of the things which people say is it's not always, you know, with, even though they're very welcoming to me, but it's it's not always a welcoming place um, if you want to go there because they kind of want you to sort of show some commitment to Switzerland before you get a residency or are able to buy a house or, you know, live there for the long term. It's a really interesting place.
1: So what about Austria, you know, sort of relatively uh, close to Switzerland, but uh, in some ways, not a completely different story, but a really kind of distinctive and different story. One which, um, as I read the chapter, I was kind of struck by, this might be a case study in if you'd like to do almost sort of industrial innovation and developments, Austria might be the place to look.
0: Yeah. So Austria is an example of industrial policy, basically. You know, Austria, so they started off in a... You know they basically saw an opportunity. They had a lot of, a lot of, um, of good heavy industry which is very heavily linked into the state, and um, which was relatively low tech. They were going to join the European Union, and they could see that sort of Eastern Europe was sort of booming as a market. And what they did was there was a sort of realization that they could not compete on price, and so they had to compete on quality. And then the essentially the bureaucrats were given a task by um, Chrusciel, who's the old. Um, Uh, Chancellor, who basically said, you know, we want you guys to focus on R&D. And this became the sort of consensus. It's like an R&D consensus. So they had a, over a a period of sort of 20 years, they had the largest increase in R&D spending of any OECD country, our South Korea. A lot of this was focused in existing firms in normally non-R&D intensive industries. And the result was like, you know, whereas we saw, you know, we're seeing decline in our steel sector in the UK, you know, as we speak. Was in Austria, that didn't happen. And part of this, and this wasn't sort of like a, it's ironic, it definitely wasn't a sort of Austrian school of economics type story. It was much more about partnership, about industrial policy, and partly also about luck. You know, they were in, a, in, they were in the right place at the right time, but they also had the right policy.
1: And again, did they do anything wrong? Are there any... Um... Limits to Austria's kind of lucky industrial models? I mean, Austria has some real governance problems, right? I mean, the
0: civil servants I spoke to were like, you know, who I interviewed were like very, very sharp and very, very open about the sort of the limitations of that. And then the second thing, so about the limitations of some of the sort of Austrian model of governance, corruption at sort of relatively high levels, stuff like that. But then the other thing is like, you know, every single Austrian policymaker I interviewed for this book, every single one said they didn't have enough venture capital. But like part of me is like, well, why do you need venture capital? You're like 20% richer than we are. We've got loads of venture capital. But then I think what they really meant was that there is a real concern that the Austrian model needs to continue adapting and then not necessarily clear where it adapts to, adapts to next. You know, like the economy is like, you know, still it needs more of these. There's not that many of the sort of firms in the sort of newer industries. And so they're worried that they've had their success and they won't be able to sort of repeat it. With the next wave of technological change,
1: I mean it's interesting that sense of unexpected or um, almost possibly unintended consequences from um, an innovation model because this is really the story you're trying to tell with with Taiwan. There's incredible success of you know almost the kind of building of a nation um, in um, where are we kind of seventy year period or so, but at the same time that model is now confronting really serious issues about the proceeds of innovation really not being shared equitably at all. So what what's the sort of um, story of maybe unforeseen consequences in Taiwan? Yeah, so Taiwan Taiwan's kind of an interesting story. It's a
0: it's an interesting story for geeks like me as well, right? Because they, it has always been seen as being a place which is relative, probably the most equal of the Asian tigers. So this is a common thing people say. They'll say like, you know, you look at Singapore, highly unequal, south korea highly unequal um you know hong kong highly unequal but taiwan sort of managed to hold out and you get these sort of um and people sort of still make these sort of claims and yeah so i started doing interviews in taiwan uh with taiwanese people rather and every single person i spoke to said are you sure about this it just feels kind of unequal when you're there like it doesn't feel like it's a sort of you know nordic type paradise so actually having gone in with the idea that Taiwan was was very equal what we learned from it. I actually discovered that actually it has some sort of like really difficult problems and I did new data analysis you know came with my poor friend Han Wang had to do a load of data analysis for me to sort of you know help me sort of understand what was going on there and actually what what had happened there right so we all know Taiwan's sort of economic growth model's been really good um been very very strong. a lot of it's been based on sort of high-tech industries, um, particularly sort of semiconductors that model was looking was good at first and it was good when they were in the sort of earlier phases of development and it seems to have sort of broken down a bit now you have for example entrepreneurs who keep some of their money in china for you know obvious reasons who are you know, very rich but not not always counted in the sort of official data you have this sort of growing divide between the um people who work in the sort of tech sector and people who don't and you also have there's also an age thing here as well right which is that you know essentially what my argument is that. There had always been, one of the great things about Taiwan had always been like this sort of balance of sort of, you know, I call it the race between education, where the race between education and technological development reflecting a sort of famous, famous book in economics on a similar topic. And, but basically, you know, what happened was that sort of, you know, race started to be won by technology. So, you know, the educational system couldn't quite manage to sort of match up with everything else. And it's kind of a sort of an example of sort of bad inequality question it is, I mean, if you listen to sort of, you know, the senior Taiwanese politicians, now they're saying one of the things they need to focus on is um, sort of some sort of making sure that the benefits of that sort of enormous success in, in tech sort of somehow trickles down. So there's some sort of question about whether they'll be able to do that.
1: So the last case study in the book is Sweden. And I guess Switzerland, Austria, Taiwan, and maybe to the kind of... Um, sort of average informed listener, maybe not the places they'd go to if they're thinking about um, equality um, and things like strong welfare states. But obviously, Sweden is very well known, um, you know, in a variety of kind of um, political, social, economic contexts for um, its welfare state. But the story you tell, actually, I I think is really interesting, because it's the story of um, perhaps a bit like Taiwan, kind of unintended, uh, or unforeseen consequences of an innovation system that really works—that you know—is bound up and almost inseparable from the welfare state, but then sees challenges because of welfare state restructuring. And it's interesting to know, I, I guess, not just the story of Sweden, but I suppose what lessons Sweden might have if countries are in the middle of questions about could we have a different welfare state? Would having a different welfare state do more to promote innovation?
0: Yes, yeah, so, I mean. <laughs> Like, Sweden's really a sort of, I mean, for me, it's a it's a great case study. It's got, you know, we look on it as this sort of, you know, basically, basically, you know, one of the sort of things I look at in the book is the idea that the US is, like, the technological leader in, like, digital tech firms. So, you know, your Facebook, your, or whatever it's called now, Meta, all of these sort of different, um, you know, Google, all of these sort of big tech firms, you know, the most of them have come out of the United States but there's one place in Europe which is really good at them as well and that's Sweden and actually in the 90s and and 2000s people were saying that Sweden's innovation model was like done it wouldn't be able to compete it wouldn't be able to make these sort of like jumps into new radical tech such as the sort of ones which I talk about um, people in Austria being sort of concerned about not being able to and if you look at it there's there's a couple of things which drove this sort of Swedish success one is you know one is people going to Silicon Valley and coming back and bringing their sort of knowledge but one of the things which which comes out quite clearly is that you know these are multinational firms they need to attract people to sweden and particularly to stockholm um and one of the things they you know when i interviewed firms when i interviewed firms in digital tech they basically said look one of the things which really benefits us here is that you can move in and you know the schools are good you know the housing's pretty good and stuff like that but again like with taiwan there are these sort of like challenges to the model i mean we know that Sweden's sort of troubled with um you know got some problems with um sort of migrant integration at the moment we know that there's a sort of you know economic challenges but it it does it's it's one of the few places in europe which really manages to be succeeding in sort of radical tech and it's the thing for me is that you know there's a sort of like silicon valley libertarianism which people talk about you know you know make it yourself or you know pull yourself up by the bootstraps but actually sweden shows that actually you can be very successful in digital tech with a strong welfare state which brings up um, brings up incomes for other people. I mean, it's an obvious point in a way, right? Is that, you know, if you get rich, you can have a welfare state, which brings up living standards for other people. It's very different to the sort of Swiss model, which is looking much less welfare statey, but it's um, it's a sort of an interesting way of, of sharing the benefits of, of innovation.
1: But what are they doing in terms of, I guess, the kind of the downsides um, of the system they, they've got? Particularly, and I think this is a, a really great distinction you you draw in that chapter about effectively kind of rising wealth inequality. So rather than, you know, looking at people's paychecks and saying, this is quite an equal society, they're grappling with the fact that some people are very wealthy now compared to the rest of the population.
0: Yeah. So actually, I mean, it's not even just now. So, you know, Swedish history has been marked by sort of essentially large dynasties of, you know, often industrialists who are you know who are important to Swedish life you know it's not a big country um, but these people who are very important to Swedish life and are um, essentially offering you know benefit from the sort of technological success of the country now the key thing is that these have always been sort of relatively I mean so uh, Markus Grilich uh, Lund sometimes calls him sort of patriotic capital you know this is people who are sort of staying around and, and keeping sort of circulating the money in the local area and actually you know part of this is you and you can sort of see this sort of thing developing with the sort of tech firms as well right which is that you know in in this in silicon valley you have people who set up successful tech firms and then become angel investors or invest in vc and then sort of you know that creates more firms you can see sort of similar dynamics operating in sweden as well where sort of you know the the people who founded spotify are sort of helping to you know helping to found and sort of mentor and fund the next generation of of swedish sort of firms so yeah so essentially you know sweden the the model's adapting and it's sort of like challenges having to adapt um it's not like they have sort of high marginal tax rates um like they used to or they don't have quite such high marginal tax rates as they used to um but it does have to be tolerant of this high levels of wealth inequality like levels of wealth inequality both at the very top but also from you know people in the middle income who um who don't necessarily need to save for for um for retirement because the welfare state is there for them.
1: So the book closes with um somewhat of a kind of to-do list uh, I guess for um listeners and, and and policymakers alike to really think through. And I'm intrigued by not to reduce the book's arguments and an analysis, which is incredibly rich and, and incredibly detailed, to sort of, you know, trite points about um innovation and, and, and social equity, but what are the kind of reflections what other kind of lessons do you think we can draw from the book
0: yeah so i, I don't want to imply a sort of cookie cutter approach i don't want to have like a a sort of creative class type approach to innovation but i do think there's three things which are really important um the first is that you know these countries that have generative institutions this is the phrase used by david Soskis. you know generative institutions being the institutions which help you create innovation in the first place it's everything from sort of leading firms universities, <clears throat> research labs. But then the other things they do is they also have diffusive institutions. So this is the idea that you have institutions which are good at helping diffuse the benefits of diffuse innovation into other firms. So in Switzerland's great example here, you know, they have universities of applied science, which don't do like leading edge, world leading research. They do applied research for local firms and they have networks of local firms who sort of talk to each other and engage about sort of technology. How they can incorporate it and that be through into productivity. Vocational education is another good example here. But then the final thing, I think the point, which is clear, particularly from the Swedish case, but also the Austrian case and the Swiss case, of it, is that you need some sort of welfare state, some structure of sort of either, either its welfare state or sort of labor market institutions, which mean that you're sort of, you know, it's not just a sort of capitalist free crawl that you're sort of redistributing um, from the people who, who
1: sort of do well from innovation and Making sure that the benefits brought to share. I'd said earlier that the book is incredibly rich and has got you know so much going on. I mean, you've talked actually about even just doing the fieldwork across the four countries is a huge achievement. And so it seems a kind of slightly mean to say. So what are you doing next, <laughs> given um, you've done this? You know, really kind of huge. And and, and I think you know, in some ways, almost kind of sort of career summarizing um, book here. But where do you go next with this? I mean, it strikes me that this question of kind of innovation and social equity is going to be a long running um, and in some ways kind of um, almost lifetime's work of of, uh, a research agenda really. And something you can certainly come back to, you know, almost every year, but but certainly every three or four years. Or have you kind of settled accounts with questions of innovation and are you moving on to something uh, different next?
0: Yeah, I mean, I have to be honest, I don't really know. I mean, I sort of, having written this book, it sort of opens up, it sort of opened up quite a lot of things for me, which I think are interesting. I mean, look, so the most interesting thing for me about writing this book was this notion of sort of pre-distribution, like the Swiss model. Like how do you, so this is something which like Ed Miliband was interested in quite a long time ago, but the Swiss model of, you know, which combines innovation, which combines like, you know, a sharp capitalist edge, but also manages to share the benefits. I think that's really, you know, I think that's probably where I'll be sort of focusing my time, probably hopefully also managing to spend quite a lot of time in Switzerland. So that's the first thing which I think I'm sort of coming out of this. And then the other thing is I'm looking, starting to look at some of the countries which didn't make on my list. So like I have a big project about Singapore at the moment, I think really interesting place because, you know, it's not really our data, it's too small. It's not sort of, it's not, you know, data produced is produced as part of the sort of OECD stuff, but it's got this sort of slightly, you know, it doesn't look great on some measures, but actually, you know, you talk to a lot of Singaporeans and they say big challenges in the place, but there's sort of also some sort of, you know, there's also some sort of real strength. So that's, that's the thing hard. I'm looking at at the moment. Um, you know, hopefully this is a, as a sort of agenda, this will continue to run, like you say, because um, it's certainly been something I've been studying it since my PhD and I want to continue studying it um, in the future.